Okay, so I'm giving everybody like an, the ability to like introduce themselves um, for the podcast. You know, like I had Ryan Shipper on. He's a tattoo artist, so he said, "Hey, I'm Ryan Shipper. I'm a tattoo artist over here. This is what I do." Or uh, Joe Dung. He said, "Hey, I'm a musician. I'm a rapper. I live in LA." How would you describe yourself if somebody asked you to describe yourself? Uh, if I if I my, my wife says it best. Uh, my name's Ron. I'm just a guy of many traits. Um, but by skill, I'm a, a heavy truck technician slash automotive technician. I'm located here in Norman, Oklahoma. And uh, like I said, I got many skills and traits that I try to use. You've worked on a lot of different kind of vehicles, too. Didn't you work for some sort of like NASCAR, like racing racetrack or something like that, too? Yeah. Um, back in the day. Uh, I used to work for Richard Petty uh, Motorsports in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, basically, what it was is like it's uh, the closest that any NASCAR or gearhead will ever get to being in or driving a, a, a NASCAR style stock car. And, you know, it's based out of many places. Um, we had locations in California, Texas. Uh, you know, at the biggest tracks in NASCAR, you know, Talladega and stuff like that, and at Disney World. So a lot of times we were traveling around the country doing um, events, you know, after some of the biggest races in NASCAR, we would host uh, ride-alongs where fans would be able to purchase tickets and come ride with us in our stock cars on the actual NASCAR track. So, you know, they get the feel of the track, they get the experience of the car, the sounds, the smells, all those things that enact onto your senses that you won't get, you know, through a TV or just being there watching, you actually get to feel it once you get inside that car. And, um, you know, that was like one of the funnest jobs that I've ever had, you know, the crew that I've been with, they're very memorable. And uh, I still talk to a lot of those guys, but, you know, it was just like a stepping stone into my career because it taught me how to be a better driver, you know, and it taught me how to be a better technician and just, you know, build great relationships with people from all over. Because in that field, I met a lot of different people. I met some of the pro NASCAR style stock car drivers and some of the local guys at your local tracks that are trying to get to that level. So it just enabled me to build a bunch of cool relationships. That's awesome. I remember seeing photos that you would post <clears throat> like on the racetrack. And I feel like, I mean, I never really got into a whole lot of like NASCAR driving stuff. I was usually really interested in like Japanese drift racing and things like that. I mean, it just kind of seems like it's more um, fast paced, you know, um, just like more things going on. But man, seeing yeah. photos on that track, that track is huge. I never realized how bi how massive that track was until you were posting photos like walking on it. Yeah, man, like, um, and every track's different. Um, every track's going to be laid out different. Like, I know um, Vegas, we have a bank on Vegas that when you go into it, it's, it's very angled. But it's nothing like Talladega where the embankment going into those turns, you'll definitely feel the G-forces pushing against your body. And then some tracks you got that when you go into the turns um, – it's flat, so it takes a bit more finesse to, you know, um, hit the apex of those turns. 
And then, you know, you got some tracks that are laid out just a slight bit differently that you may not notice it on TV, but the perk of getting that ride along experience. And we even offered an experience where we would teach you to drive the car. So you actually got to drive the car. And a lot of my students will say, man, watching this on TV, I never knew that this would be on this track. And we had, you know, dog left certain turns and certain terminology that, um, you will learn going through the classroom that, you know, I was an instructor. So a lot of times I would warn them, you know, hey, this is what to expect on a track. We're going to show you where this, this and this is. And then that way we can progress your driving and get you up to optimal speed. So, I mean, just like you, I got into drift racing as well uh, when I was in Okinawa. And that's what kind of, like I said, NASCAR driving made me better as a driver towards that. Um, I had friends who uh when i was in vegas he's in formula d pro drifting now his name is um forrest wang and i used to hang out with him a lot in las vegas and he helped me get better as a drifter because there is a program called um i forget the name of it but anybody who's from vegas would know what it was it was like if you didn't even have a drift car they had rental cars for you to learn how to drift in oh, wow. so your hachirokus your e30s 240s you can go rent one out and learn how to drift on a skid pad and then once you progress past that you could go into the actual drift course that they had set up and start learning how to do that so like i said that career just kind of helped me become better as a driver and stuff like that yeah i didn't realize that you were driving i thought that you were just doing mainly mechanic stuff, like working directly on the engines and on the vehicles. I had, I had no idea that you were driving that entire time in those kind of cars. So I got a question about that. So as you mentioned, you, you and I kind of, we, we both lived mm -hmm. in Okinawa, Japan. Um, and we went to high school together, um, or high school together. So I don't know why I said that so weird. Um, I kind of got interested in racing, like with like the drift racing stuff, uh, like you did. Drift racing is so much different than professional racing in America in a couple different ways. And I think the biggest way is that it's very underground and it's like anybody that has a skyline, uh -huh. uh, like any sort of skyline, any year, they just basically straight pipe it and start ripping up the e-brake as they go around turns, which basically means that majority of drift racers that I'm aware of like, were, had a very different sort of like learning experience when it came to racing and, and definitely were not really that great just kind of um, very loud what did you see that was different between like racing in japan drift racing with high schoolers and stuff like that versus like actual professional on a track like it, there's got to be some major differences right yeah there's a a huge difference as far as um drifting goes in japan versus drifting in the states uh the first big difference is going to be um the track layouts and, you know, in Japan, it's a culture. It's a thing that, you know, we try to recreate here in America, but we'll never kind of be able to get those tracks that they drove on. Cause anybody who loves drifting here in America, their goal is to one day go to Japan and uh, drive on those tracks. But um, some of the biggest differences that I've, I've seen, you know, because when I was in um, Okinawa, uh, like I said, like you said, we went to school together. So we knew some of the local car guys and everybody hung out with drifters and whatnot. And I got to meet some of the local, uh, the local nationals on island. And 
go to drift events with them and watch their skills and technique and how they were just different from Americans. Like uh, in Japan, they don't really rely on horsepower. Like here in America, the big thing is everybody wants big gobs of horsepower. So now over the years, you've seen V8s become real popular with drifting and in Japan, it's not that big of a so that's one of the biggest differences in, is in Japan, they rely more on style as opposed to horsepower. You know, they want the car to look good and uh, anybody over there will tell you drifting is like art in motion. So the car's gotta look good, the driver's gotta look good while he's doing it. And you know, it's all about your style. So like, that's one of the biggest differences that I took away from drifting over there versus drifting over here. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a that's something that you see that goes across like multiple aspects of like Japanese culture when it comes to uh, like hobbies, I guess you could say. So skateboarding in Japan yeah. versus skateboarding in America, totally different. I mean, you see skateboarders in Japan, they're very technical. So they might not be jumping down 20 stairs, but they're doing some sort of some trick that most people would not even be able to do, even if they're professional in America. Whereas American skateboarders, they're a big thing even now is like who can hit the biggest handrail, who can do the biggest air, like the biggest, baddest, everything. I feel like that's a huge American style, as you know. Um, when I came back from Japan, I was used to racing around in cars that were like four cylinders, you know, like like and, and getting chased by oh. little Japanese K cars that were, you know, like they measured uh, Japanese police cars, not the Crown Vicks, but like the actual Japanese police cars in like CC because they had such low horsepower, it was ridiculous. They are just like, yeah, this is a... I can't remember what their engines were. They're ridiculously small. And then coming back to the U.S., it was all, I moved to New Mexico, and it was all just big, huge, loud, fast trucks. I mean, even the parking lots in New Mexico yeah. are bigger than everywhere else because everybody drives a truck. So, yeah, that's definitely something different. Japanese people really like to finesse everything with, like, some style and some major technique rather than uh, going big and hard. But in America, we, like, go big or go home every time. Yeah. Yeah, like that that was a huge adjustment and you know like i said i grew up i grew up around cars my whole life but i've always been into import cars so when we moved to japan that was like you know a dream come true i got to see a lot of my dream cars growing up i got to ride and even possibly drive in some of my dream cars when we were over there so you know that was just like a dream come true to me you know when we moved over there and it was like coming back to america uh, part of the car scene was like a huge culture shock, you know. And uh, when I first came back after getting out of the military, I was lucky to go back home. And in Las Vegas, you know, we had a Chinatown and then we had the uh, we had what they called the underground meets in Chinatown. So some nights it would seem just like Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. You know, you pull in, you got all these cars that are like lit up. And it was like the closest thing that I felt to being back in Okinawa, going to um, American Village and seeing a car meet there, you know. So that was like the funnest times that I had. And then, you know, when you go to other places like Texas, where I got to meet another guy we went to school with, they have a huge uh, Japanese culture there. And, you know, a friend of ours named Nick Perry, he sets up coffee and cars. And now it's like he drives a, a Nissan Sephiro, which is another Japanese car. And then, you know, he pulls up, he's got his whole crew of guys with all these Japanese cars in Texas. And you're just like, holy cow, 
there's a bunch of, you know, Japanese cars that, like actually in the States and they're all doing it to how it would see if we were back in Japan, you know what I'm saying? And then, you know, it's just like here in Oklahoma, I got a friend here who's, he's from Japan. His grandpa lives in a, a village out of, outside of Tokyo and you know, he's got these guys that they're all getting cars straight from Japan. And it's like, dang, man, the scene's like really coming alive over here, you know? So it's just crazy how like we want to be like them and they kind of want to be like us in a car scene in a way. Yeah, I can see that. Over here in Ohio, I ran into a guy who was driving a Silady. Like, you know, when people used to take like a Sylvia S13 or like S14, then put a 180SX on the back or like vice versa, you know, they kind of like flip the front and the back that way. I think they called them Siladies or something like that, right? Yeah, depending on what it was, you had Sil 80s, one Vias, uh, uh, the strawberry front. If you put like a S15 front end on a 180, like there's all kind of the weird conversions that they had names for them, man. Yeah, this guy, I, I, so I met a guy, I think it, it might have been a Sil 80. I can't remember what the name of it was. I mean, especially because those names always go back and forth and coming to the, to the States, a 180 isn't a 180 in the States, it's a 240. So like it gets, I get so confused with that sometimes, but uh, I saw him in Ohio and I was like, Oh dude, that looks straight <laughs> up like something that came from high school. Like that looks like something that would be in our parking lot in high school. And I started talking to him. I was looking at his car. And the funniest thing was uh, I see a lot of Americans in this area, like um, PCSing from Japan to Ohio. Cause there's a huge base over here. And some of them will get like stickers shipped over from Japan and some people just like the cars, right? So they, they like the Japanese car culture. So they start putting Japanese car culture things all over their car, but they don't know what it means, you know? So, um, there's a very popular sticker I see on Japanese drift cars in the States. And that sticker is the kind of looks like a triangle. It's half yellow and then half green. And those stickers in Japan mean one of two things. If I think if yellow's on the left side and green's on the right side, it means that that's a new driver. It's like a brand new driver, you know, it's like, Hey, Sorry, I'm new. And then if it's green and yellow, then it means that they're, they're they're an old person driver, like one of those two. So I see those every now and then, which kind of makes me laugh. Yeah. And then I also saw in this guy's car, he had uh, some Japanese kanji, and it said, <laughs> it said, uh, hentai ga cycle, which means hentai is the best. And I asked him about it, and he had no clue what it meant. He just saw it was kanji and bought it and put it on his car, and I'm like, oh. Yeah, man, you'll see... Um you'll see a lot of that like uh i can't even lie like before i even moved to japan those stickers are actually a fad you know the beginning driver and the old driver and stuff like that and um when i got to japan and i learned what they were i was like oh i want nothing to do with that i want no association <laughs> with that even after i got my license so then like you know by the time i did come back stateside and i seen that those stickers were still a thing I just laughed and I would always try to tell people, I was like, hey, man, you, you do know what that sticker means. And, you know, the, the thing about it is, you know, they don't really care. You know, they don't look at it as good or bad. They just it's one of those that they call it scene points. You know, as long as it's JDM, which stands for Japanese domestic market, as long as it, they can say it's from Japan and it's on their car. That's all that matters. You know, a lot of times they don't care. Sometimes some people put it on there as a joke. So. The, but the whole kanji thing, yeah, I, I mean, that goes back to, you know, people getting kanji tattoos and having no idea what they say. So a lot of people just do it because it's cool. You know, I've tried 
So I will never buy a kanji sticker unless I have like somebody like you proofread it for me. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to do it for sure. I mean, I guess in the states nobody knows what it means, so you could say whatever. But I've seen I've seen my fair share of funny tattoos that I could read and like debate whether or not to ask the person if they meant to get that tattooed or not. But I don't want to offend anybody, so eh, it is what it is. All right, I got a question for you. So <clears throat> when you were talking about um, like racing on these tracks and how you were a driving instructor. You drove those cars a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Did you have to get like cla- uh, mm-hmm. like classed into that and like licensed specifically for the, a certain kind of car to do that for that company? No, see, um, the way that that company worked, uh, everybody needs to know how to do everything. So honestly, the way that I got that job, you know, I was just looking for work. A friend had uh, reached out to me and he was like, hey, man, um, I know you're mechanically inclined. I know you know how to do this, that and the other. Would you be interested in working for this company? I was like, sure, I'll I'll go check it out. You know, what won me over was going into the shop, seeing an actual NASCAR sitting in the shop. So what they do is, you know, just like any other company, you come in. You start from the bottom and you work your way up, you know. So I started out uh, like it's like I worked at an amusement park. I was the I was a seatbelt buckler and I gave you a helmet and your and your uniform. So I would help you get in the car, put your seatbelt on, tell you to smile for the camera, just like you're at like an amusement park or something. So I started from there, you know, helping people out. And then once I started learning more about, you know, how the company ran or how we ran events. I moved up to a, a crew chief. And then from crew chief, I became an instructor. The instructor, he leads the class, you know, he instructs them on what to expect getting into the car. And then from there, I went to become, I guess you you could say like a salesman. I was trying to sell people ride alongs, you know, pitch them on wanting to come ride in the car with us first before they drove. So that way they could feel it. And then from selling the ride-alongs, I became an instructor. So I had to go through with my manager who, you know, would take me through the track, show me how to drive, how we're supposed to do it, and, you know, with company policy and stuff like that. And, you know, you got to get so many drive time hours to where they eventually cut you loose and let you start doing this for other people. So getting that perk was probably one of the – happiest days of my life because I used to love just driving the cars back and forth from the shop to the track and then when I finally got the privilege to drive them on track man I was ecstatic you couldn't tell me nothing I I thought you know in my mind I was like man I can do this every day on tv for 200 laps and they can pay me all the money in the world because I got to meet you know Denny Hamlin Joey Logano and at the time that I met Joey Logano we were the same age and I'm thinking, bro, I could take your job right now if they gave it to me. <laughs> so I had a little bit of confidence built up going into having that job. And like I said, that was the best job I've ever had in the world. And I would, you know, if I could go back, I would definitely do it again. That sounds like a blast. I mean, to be so I guess for me, because I was into like Japanese racing, like drifting. So you're seeing a little bit more movement in cars and things. Watching NASCAR never really seemed that appealing, but I've always heard from everybody that's actually either been in a car on the track, 
been near the track to actually see a race or even hear it like close enough to actually hear everything that it's a way different experience being that close to it and involved than it is watching it it's kind of like baseball baseball is boring unless you're playing it uh and then if you play baseball then watching baseball is not boring anymore because you understand a lot of dynamics of it right so in japan there is a bit of drag racing. I mean, it was mainly Americans I knew that did it, and they always did it at the same spot where they pull out and they block the light for a couple changes, and then when it changes green on like the second or third time, everybody takes off like across a bridge going to Yomitang, which is like the biggest place I saw people do it, mm-hmm. um, from Tsunabe to Yomitang, like that little um, stretch of uh, bridge. Um, but, I mean, okay. maximum speeds, we're talking like under 200K, maximum for people that have like twin turbos and these lightweight cars with no backseat or anything. And that's probably like 160 or something like that. And that's like pushing it for people that have like the fastest cars with the absolute top of everything. I'm curious, like that has to be nowhere near what you've been driving on these tracks, right? Like you've been driving, you've been hitting numbers that like just blow way, way past that. Right. Yeah. I mean, once you get going, uh, you're doing 160 going into turn one and turn two coming out, you know. So, like, 160 is the most we could do with students on a track. And you're not going in a straight line, you know. You got these these little turns and apexes you got to hit that you learn how to use foot control. And, I mean, 160 isn't even the fastest that I've been, you know. I've been faster than that in my personal vehicles because uh, I've done a little bit of drag racing. I've done quarter mile and some half mile stuff too. And uh, it's just, like I said, it's an adrenaline rush doing them kind of things, you know? You have like a specific number that you know of, like the fastest, what's, I'm curious if you know, like the fastest you've ever been in a car. Uh... I can say there's a time once I looked down and uh, I know when I looked down for the split second, you know, it was probably 150, 160, somewhere in there. And then uh, that was just in my car. And uh, when I used to have my motorcycle, um, I probably gotten up to 155, 160 as well. And the two spectrums are completely different. And I was like, yeah, I don't need to do that anymore. You know? So, I mean, I'm a, a speed junkie and a gearhead, And, uh, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I couldn't imagine doing that, doing that on a motorcycle. I think, I mean, I've, I probably hit like maybe 130, 140 max, like in Japan with some friends. Uh, but at that speed, like those cars are not really meant to go that fast. Even if you do everything you can possibly do, like those cars in Japan are not meant to go that fast. And the reason they're not meant to is because they are so lightweight, <laughs> the air starts hitting it. And I remember like when I start hitting the brakes, everything's shaking so much. And I was terrified that like the air was going to hit us and just like f- cause the car to just flip. And I, the, to this day, I still was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure we were close to doing that because I saw a car actually do that in real life. Like, <laughs> I didn't think that was actually possible to just like get aerodynamic to the point that you actually take, you know, like get airborne, which would be terrible. But man, I couldn't imagine doing that on a motorcycle in a car. I feel like, I mean, you go 160 and you crash, like you're done no matter what. Like, I don't know how, how that's possible to like walk away from, but on a motorcycle, I mean, me, man, anything over 40 miles an hour gets me uncomfortable. Just that's gotta be, 
that's got to be adrenaline rush to have all that wind hitting you going that fast. Yeah, right? no, no, no. When I did that, I was still very, I was fairly new to riding motorcycles. And um, I had a Jixxer 600. That was my first bike that I bought. And like I said, it was my first time, you know, I was probably like a couple of months into riding when I first did that. And it wasn't something that I did all the time, but trust me, it, it, it's a, uh, it's fun. It's exciting, but you know, you definitely realize, you know, the dangers that come with it, especially if you're a new rider, I never encourage anybody to do that kind of activity. Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, that's, those are some, that's real quick, but you also live, you were living in Texas and in Oklahoma, which is pretty flat and there's not a lot of people around in certain areas. So there's gotta be some, I, I, I've seen like posts that you've made before of like car meets was there a lot of drag racing? Like, I don't want to say, I don't want to say illegal drag racing because I feel like that's kind of implied if you're doing it on the street. But there was there a lot of drag racing that went on in Oklahoma and in uh, Texas for a minute. Um, man, that's drag racing's everywhere. No matter where you live, like you said in in Okinawa, it's just different everywhere you go. Um, in Oklahoma we do it it's it's like it's almost like a way of life here it's the main thing people do here and i'll tell anybody you know if you think your car's fast don't mess with cars or trucks from texas or oklahoma because uh you know that truck that looks like you know something you take your kids to soccer practice in or your wife's suv you never know what they got in it it'll blow your doors off and next thing you know you're just sitting there looking stupid you know so if you think your car's big and bad, don't mess with anything from Texas or Oklahoma. You think that's because, like, uh, I mean, is that just a cultural thing in that area? It's just become <clears throat> something that everybody enjoys doing? Or do you think that it's more like Oklahoma and Texas are not really known to have a whole lot of fun stuff to do if you don't live in a big city? Um, I think what it is, it's kind of a mixture of both, you know? Like, it's one of those where... Um, it's, you know, getting into cars, being a gearhead. Like I said, I grew up with it. You know, I got it from my grandpa and I got it from my uncle. I was always around cars. So I think, you know, in places like Texas and Oklahoma, um, a lot of these guys, you know, they, they have a passion for cars. And it's like, you know, they just grow up around it and they always want to, they have a goal in mind and they try to achieve that goal if you have a friend who you know you both grow up together and you both get your first car it's like hey whose car is going to be faster whose car is going to be doing this who can do that you know and the, you know you just kind of get like a bit of rivalry and the best way that i can explain or you know give somebody a brief or like a good uh view of drag racing between oklahoma and texas Honestly, just watch the show uh, Street Outlaws on Discovery. Like, I ain't trying to make this no ad or nothing. I just know a lot of those guys. I met them personally, and uh, I've raced a couple of them before as well. So, like, and they have, and Oklahoma and Texas has a huge rivalry no matter what it is, whether it's football, basketball, and racing. It's really, really big here. I mean, you got – we got dig racing, which is from a complete stop. And then there's roll racing, which has become really, really popular 
within the past, I'll say five, six years, um, you'll see crazy cars. Like if, if you've never seen any of those events, just look it up on YouTube. You'll see like cars that are making power that they shouldn't be making. I'm talking, you know, 12, 13, 14, 1500 horsepower. And it's like, you shouldn't be able to go that fast in that <laughs> short distance. You know what I'm saying? So what's it like? I mean, do you get hassled a lot in Oklahoma and Texas for having those kind of cars? I mean, I imagine a lot of them kind of sound like sleepers to me. Like if you don't, if you wouldn't recognize that that would be something that could pump out like what it does, it, they probably don't have racing stickers all over everything. They're probably not all slammed to the ground every single second, you know? So I'm curious, like in Japan, you kind of get hassled by the cops a lot because everybody's always racing. But you can also run away from the cops in Japan when you're racing. So if you get fast enough, they're just not going to try to chase you or they'll try to chase you and eventually give up because they can't catch you. That doesn't happen in the States. If you try to run away from a cop in the States, he's going to keep coming. And if you get away from him, they're just going to send a helicopter, which you can't outrun no matter what you're in. So I'm curious, like, what is it like in Oklahoma and Texas? If they, if they see, like, a car that is slammed and, you know, has, like, camber tires or whatever, they're going to start, like, uh, like hassling you? Or you they kind of just let it go as long as you're not, like, endangering the public? Man, um, well, first, like, it's it's very different in Texas and it's very different here in Oklahoma as far as uh, the way that they do things. Like, here in Oklahoma, as long as you got lights and a windshield, you can drive anything on the road and the cops won't mess with you as long as your tag is up to date. Like, I mean, your car could be falling apart, you know, about to blow up, but as long as you got a tag and your lights work, you can drive anything on the road. So with, with things like that going on, um, uh, you'll see full-blown, dedicated, damn near pro street cars driving, you know, to certain things on the streets in Oklahoma. Like if there's like a, a cars and coffee or um, an antique car show or, or anything like kind of motor sport related, like any kind of car meet, you'll see some of everything. And I mean cops will be there they'll come up to you and like i can honestly say from my own personal experience i've been on both sides of the spectrum because i've owned a v8 car and i've owned jdm cars and both of my cars have been built you know i've been on the on the streets driving with uh, um fats and skinnies you know i had the skinny tires in the front with uh, a huge slick in the back and i'm driving to work a cop pulls me over I'm thinking I'm about to get a ticket for something. And he, he wants to talk to me about my car. He's wanting to know what's done <laughs> to the motor, you know, and ask me what's my best time that I ran at the truck, you know, whereas, you know, the crazy part is I feel like in America though, the Japanese cars, they get more slack because maybe depending on the age of the cop or whatsoever they don't understand that car culture so if they see like the stance boys as we call them who's got the the camber going and you know they might get ticketed more because when those guys drive on the road they gotta swerve more to avoid potholes and speed bumps so a cop might target them more because they look at it as erratic driving but you know when the cars are at a car show all they can do is just appreciate what those guys have done to achieve the looks uh, that those cars have, you know? So, like I said, I've been on both sides of the spectrum. I've had Japanese cars that were built and a lot of the um, V8 guys, they used to be surprised my car was so fast. 
because you know i'm driving a subaru one it's a subaru you know you got a guy pulling up on me in a mustang a corvette or a dodge charger they're just going to look at me like i'm nothing but when we race and i beat them the first thing that comes up to their mind is or that the first thing that they say when they come up to me is what's done to that that car is not supposed to be that fast i wasn't <laughs> expecting you to be that fast you know and it's like you know, all I can do is just shrug my shoulders and say, you know, hey, it is what it is. <laughs> so when you were, uh, when you had your Subaru, um, and you, or you had, you've had a lot of cars before, but when you had like your biggest like JDM, like st- stereotypical JDM car, did you do like the Japanese style of like no AC, no radio, no front seat, no back seat, take apart everything and just put like a roll cage in it? Or did, was that your like everyday car that you like, turned up to be uh pretty quick um in the different stages you know growing up yeah i've been there um like i said living in japan that that was kind of my thing so when i first came back to america um i had a i wanted to go for like uh there's a style based out of tokyo uh called the uh that it's like they're called kanjo racers um and they drive like older hondas and stuff like that so when i first got back to to the states i bought a honda civic you know i slammed it you know did the camber thing pulled the ac out you know and stuff like that but you know at the time i'm living in vegas you can't be driving around in 130 degree heat you know with no ac so i was like i was like screw this you know and then (laughs) I moved to Texas again, you can't be driving around, you know, being here in Oklahoma. So kind of, as I got older, you know, if my, if the car is my daily driven car, no, I wouldn't pull out, you know, my AC or my interior or stuff like that. But, you know, as my income increased and I was able to have a car for work and a car for play, you know, I would make those decisions like my last car that I had my Subaru. I took the AC out, but I kept the creature comforts of, uh, you know, the front seats had heated and cooled options. So if my wife rolled with me and, you know, she could have the, the, the cooled seat feature on and I could have my kid in the back seat, we had the radio so we can listen to music. So as I got older, I was able to build, a race car, but make it a streetable race car. So I kept some of my creature comforts, but I didn't sacrifice horsepower. That's a smart way to do it for sure. I don't know how, I mean, even in Okinawa, man, like Okinawa doesn't get 130 degrees, but it's humid. It is so hot over there in the summer, you know, like get almost 90 degrees beat 100% humidity, which in case anybody that's listening doesn't think that that's true, it can be 100% humidity and not rain. 100% humidity just means that the air is so full of moisture that it cannot hold any more moisture. It's at, it's at the max capacity. And that's something that is a pretty regular occurrence in Okinawa. So I don't know how people rolled around with no AC. Anytime I got no friend's car that had no AC, I'm like, nah, dude, I'll walk. I'm good. This, this, thing, this car's about to be so loud anyways because you have no interior at all in the back their their mirror is just vibrating the entire time the car's on and like you try to talk you got to yell the whole time so it's, it just wasn't worth it um so you mentioned your kid you have you have a child you have a son and i'm curious like 
has that changed like how you're purchasing vehicles and like what how you're doing that for your daily driver have you you got a new you got a truck not too long ago right was that something that you did because you have a kid and you're kind of wanting more space yeah i mean it definitely changed things um before my kid was born i had i had my my race car and i had my bike and i had um my i call it a gas saver i bought a uh a honda civic just to kind of save on gas and not put all the miles on my race car you know because race cars are expensive but um once my wife told me she was pregnant my first mindset was cool you know as much as i want to show him i'm the cool dad you know i ride bikes and i race cars i was like i want to be here and i want to be in one piece and i want to be able to see him grow up so instantly like it changed my mindset from being reckless to being safe. So I sold the bike, you know, and sometimes I regret it, but I get to thinking, man, I get stupid when I get horsepower. So I sold the bike, you know, that was like a way for me to kind of show my wife, Hey, look, I'm being mature. You know, you ain't got to yell at me. So, um, but as he got older, you know, he grew up around cars. He loves my cars. Um, before he could even really talk, he used to go to car meets with me and, uh, you know, seeing my friends Corvettes and stuff when they start these cars, they're really loud. It never scared him whatsoever. If anything, when he started walking, he used to run up to the cars and it's now, you know, he throws a temper tantrum if I don't let him go into my car and pretend like he's driving. So, um, <laughs> so like he, he does now. He has a huge passion for cars. Uh, before he was born, some of my friends are giving me Hot Wheels and stuff. So he's got a collection of cars in his room. He's got a, a, a big wheel. He, he's actually got a truck that he got for Christmas. So he he loves cars. He loves trucks. Um, all it did, honestly, was just give me something to kind of do with him when he gets older. And uh Honestly, like right now, the next thing that I'm looking forward to buying uh, as a project car is going to be something that me, him, and my wife can all work on together as he grows up. So, like I say, it changes your mind, and it just makes it to where if you're a car guy, you want to have something that, you know, no matter what your kid's interested in, if he takes into something, you could at least say you did something together. Yeah, I feel like that's like a car guy's biggest memories. If they if their dad is into cars and they work on a car together with their dad, you know, I feel like that's something you see in movies a lot. A lot of my friends have stories about that too. My dad was never like mechanically inclined that way, so it was not really a whole lot of working on cars. I usually just do that with my friends, you know. And we did some dumb stuff too. We would sl- we slammed a uh, oh man, who was it? Uh, my friend Steven, He had a. Um, Man, uh, Wagon R? You're talking about Stephen Prusser? I'm talking about Stephen Hoskalis. Everybody call oh, him okay. Steve-o. I think I'm, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So his, yeah, I know who you're talking about. His Wagon R is like, a, it's re- I mean, technically it would seat five people, but it really was like an American, it's like a four-seater. And that thing, man, I don't know what that was, 750cc maybe, like this tiny little K car. 
and uh, we slammed that thing. We put like tiny little tires on it. We did some dumb stuff to it. It was a lot of fun. But um, yeah, I mean, when when my wife told me she was pregnant, um, I started looking at things a little differently too. Like we had to sell our truck, unfortunately. So I'm probably gonna want to get another truck or an SUV or something because my Mazda is too small. I don't want to. I don't want to deal with a tiny car like that all the time. But uh, I started thinking about stuff differently, especially with photography too, because photography for me was kind of the dangerous thing I did. Like it doesn't sound dangerous at all. Like taking photos is not dangerous. It's what you're taking photos of that is the dangerous thing. So <laughs> I do like, I do a lot of portrait photography but that's not dangerous at all. I don't do portraits with, I mean, I have taken photos of people that are a little sketchy, but like not anything like dangerous, dangerous, but I really like documentary photography a lot. Just documenting everyday life. And a big part of documenting everyday life is like showing not just the fancy stuff. It's also showing like the nitty gritty stuff that people don't really talk about a lot, you know? So, you know, I went to a lot of protests and, and photographed a lot of protests. I went to like some, some more like downtrodden areas in Cincinnati and in Dayton, Ohio, and, and took photos there too. And I'm kind of like looking at this a little differently, you know, like there was a protest that I really wanted to go take photos at. And I was like, oh, I had a kid coming though. Like, I'm sure this will eventually like die. I won't be so worried all the time, but especially with coronavirus, I've been like kind of like on the fence about how to deal with all this stuff, especially because like, uh, you know, we were told if, if my wife had coronavirus while she's pregnant, nobody really has a whole lot of information on that. On top of that, like when you're in the delivery room, now only one person is allowed to come back to the delivery room. I'm not allowed to go to any of her appointments anymore because of coronavirus. If I catch it or she catches it, catches it, like during the actual birthing process, like, I don't know, there's a lot of like X factors to it, but, um, you also take photos. You are also yeah. a photographer and that's something I want to talk about. Um, how did you start getting into photography? I never knew in high school that you were into that. Is that something that you got into like being around cars and seeing cool cars? No, honestly, <laughs> um, honestly, uh, what happened was, um, junior year at Kadena high uh i needed a class and i mean i always liked videos and photography and stuff but i needed a class to take and uh the only thing that was open for me to fill my schedule was photography and i don't really remember my teacher's name he was a cool guy mr fisher weird but he was cool um, yeah mr fisher he was a cool guy. Um, you know, he kind of, you know, just sitting in his class and the projects that he had us do, like before I took his class, I never heard of Photoshop and I've never heard of, you know, the programs that he taught us to use and stuff like that. And, um, you know, just the, the history lessons that he taught us about, you know, like certain photos that would appear in Time Magazine and stuff like that. So, like, I got my interest from just being in that class. And then from there, I went to video. I did video comm my senior year because I used to like to get into that aspect of it, too. So uh, I did it for a while, and then I kind of stopped. And um, I didn't really pick it up until about, oh, maybe, like, I've been in, ever since I moved to Oklahoma, in all honesty, and um, my wife's the one who kind of motivated and pushed me to get back into it. And I told her, I was like, since I last did it, you know, technology had changed with cameras by that point. So, you know, she had bought me um, 
my Nikon D3200 because, uh, you know, she would always, you know, ask me sublimely or slyly, what kind of camera do you want? What kind of camera do you like? You know, because she would always see me looking at them. And so uh, the way, you know, she got me a camera one year for my birthday and that just kind of pushed me to start trying to get back out there and learning my photography and trying to find my own style and a way to shoot and stuff like that. So I used my D3200 for everything for probably about five, six years. And I shot concerts, did everything and thinking I'm doing a great job. And then, you know, what was supposed to be a birthday present I found coming home early, like on the Easter weekend, she had a bought me the D3700 and she left it out by mistake. So when I texted her, I was like, whose camera is this? You know, she just kind of, she just kind of like, damn it, you weren't supposed to get that till your birthday kind of thing. So, you know, I was kind of happy and excited. And, you know, that's one thing that was cool to have getting into the photography thing is she always pushed me to do it, you know, cause she knew I had kind of a vision, a goal and a dream to do with it. And, uh, you know, every time that, you know, I said, I don't feel like doing this no more. She just kind of pushed me to kind of do it and get myself out there. So now, you know, I don't really have an excuse because every time I think about giving it up, something pops up to where I get motivated to start doing it again. You know, I almost stopped doing it just because of the pandemic, because right before the pandemic hit, I was, um, I was shooting concerts. I was working with friends uh, to start shooting for uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder here. And, you know, once that hit, that just kind of shut everything down. And then um, I just, I had friends start hitting me up, wanting to do shoots. I had stuff start popping up. I'm getting people wanting me to do videos and stuff like that. And it's just like, you know, okay, well, we're back in the swing of this. If I can keep this going, I'm going I'm to ride this thing out, you know. And starting in 2021, the first thing that I had to shoot was a wedding. And then right after I had that wedding, I had a gender reveal. Right after the gender reveal, I had a maternity shoot. And it's just like things are just keep coming. And I'm not saying no. And I'm, I'm happy that it's coming because it's like I was starting to lose, like, interest in it. And now that I'm getting my interest back, I love it, you know. Photography is a, a great way to show show your creative side and nothing's going to be the same between any photographer, no matter what you're shooting. So I just love it. Yeah, man, I agree with that. You you had some really good stuff. That you've been, I mean, you've been posting really good stuff. We've been talking about photography back and forth for probably like two years now. Um, I remember yeah. you posted a shot of Post Malone. And my jaw dropped. I was like, damn, he's lucky. That's awesome to be able to, to get shots like that. I was like, dude, this is, this is like some really good work too. Like not, like not just like, damn, you're lucky because you were able to do that and like jealous, but like, damn, you're lucky, like excited because the photos you took there, I was like, dude, I could see that being used in a magazine. I could see that being used in like album art in some way too. They were really, really good. Um, you know, I, I kind of had a similar, I mean, I had almost the exact same bring up with photography. I took a photography class. I took Mr. Fisher's photography class because I was bored. Um, and I, I liked photography, but I didn't like his class because it was mainly about 
Photoshop and I wasn't really about Photoshop. I really like to take photos rather than edit them. And to this day, I hate editing photos. It is like the most teeth pulling. I hate this so much thing. That I, I just really don't like editing photos. It's not that I don't think edited, edited photos are good. Yeah, I just hate doing it. <laughs> it's a skill, man. Like it's, it's a real skill. Like, if you can edit really good and get creative, I applaud you, man, because uh, trying to find, you know, brushes and, you know, going through and doing certain details and stuff like that, it's a skill. I'll give it to you. If you're a graphic designer, my hat's off to you. I can't do it. Yeah, for real, dude, for real. And, like, I think, you know, um, I, I mean, I also took uh, – video com i did video com for like four years all four years of high school so i was mainly into video and what you were saying earlier when you said that you got back into photography you said that you were telling your wife like wow technology's jumped a lot since i was into it and man that is so true because when you and i were in high school we had those cameras that we would shoot for video com and they had like the little tapes you had to put into them and then you had to convert that tape to a cd then take that cd and put it on a computer whereas now <laughs> these kids are lucky because they have this wi-fi on all cameras and bluetooth on like virtually every camera that you can just download it onto your phone and post it like two seconds so it was it was it was a rough time back in the day um i mean i got into film photography pretty early on um when i started taking photos again and uh that just changed the game for me personally um just like the look especially because i was shooting black and white film for the longest time because i heard that color film was harder to develop at home and I wanted to like learn the whole process of developing and scanning it in because it just seemed interesting you know and I saw people taking photos on film and I just thought it mm -hmm. it looked nostalgic it gave it a different look that I couldn't recreate with digital and I was more interested in like slowing down with it a little bit so I started shooting film and uh man it it changed the kind of photos that I take so before I would take really boring I mean I don't want to say film photos man. I'm sorry, what was that? I couldn't hear you. Uh, I was saying I love your film photos. Like, when you started posting those, I mean, just like you said, your draw dropped with mine. Like, dude, I, I would, like, anytime you posted something, I would show my wife. I'd be like, do you see this? I was like, I, I know this guy, and he's taking these photos. Like, even your uh, – you posted a lot of your photos from the protest, and, you know, I was like, that's – I, I was like, if he doesn't get put in the paper, I don't know. I was like, you're because to me, your photos inspire me to kind of up my game. So I look at you as somebody to kind of learn from a mentor. So like, that's why like, I salute you whenever you post up your photos. Like, I'll show your work from anywhere, man. Your photos are great, <laughs> dude. I really appreciate that, man. And I appreciate that for a lot of reasons because uh, I don't. Most of the time, I don't feel like I'm that good. Honestly, I feel like. Most of my photos, I'm like, eh, like I, I, this angle's weird. I, I talk, I took this photo, but I don't know what it means. Like maybe it looks cool, but I did this lighting right or wrong, or you know, this thing went wrong with it, that thing went wrong with it. And I also use, I used to do this. I don't do it anymore. But in the past, I would like, I would compare my worth as a photographer with how many hits I would get on a photo which is a terrible thing to do because algorithms online for Instagram or Flickr or Facebook, they're just trash. They're trash, you know? So I would post a photo that I put a lot of work into. I, I developed at home. I went to a protest. I got all sweaty. I got tear gassed. I got all this stuff going on just to get this one photo and I would post it and like no one would see it. And I would think that 
I mean, in the past, I would think, man, because nobody saw that photo, that must mean that photo is not really worth anything. So I'm just not a good photographer. All the good photographers, they got a big following, thousands and thousands of people. People buy their stuff all the time. Nobody was buying work for me for a while, and I, I stopped getting a lot of calls about doing photos. So I thought I wasn't doing well. And then I kind of switched it up. I, I kind of I kind of started realizing, like, well, I mean, maybe my photos are good because they're mine. You know, it doesn't have to be getting hit up and, and put on people's walls and people don't have to buy photo books for me and all that stuff, which I will be releasing soon, by the way. I got a photo book that I just printed off. I've got a, uh, the first prototype is I'm, I'm going to get that in like the next three weeks and I'll probably be putting that out. But, uh, yeah, I used to compare myself to a lot of different people. Earl Standerford, I had him on the podcast as one of the earlier guests. He's a guy I look up to for photography as well, but I appreciate you saying that. I've, I've not actually had anybody tell me that they looked up to me like that for photography or like, thought I was that good, you know? I've heard people say, like, yeah, dude, I like your photos, but not really that much, so much appreciated, dude. Yeah, like uh, like I said, you've convinced me to want to, you know, get my feet wet with film photography, you know, and I still struggled with the same thing that you went through, too, which is why, you know, I've had my moments to where I said, you know, I don't want to do this no more because – you know, I was like, man, well, I'm, you know, I would see people who, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure you've experienced this, but, you know, trying to build my clientele, you know, you would reach out to people and, you know, you got somebody saying, well, my cousins just picked up a camera. They can do your photos, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, it's like you kind of get, you know, you kind of lose your, your, your self-esteem so where, you know, you get mad because you like, you know, at, at one point I was getting mad because I'm like, damn, it's like anybody can just pick up a camera. And, you know, I had to lose that mindset. You know, I was like, I don't mind encouraging. Now I'm like, I encourage people to get into photography, you know, um, which is the cool thing here. I don't know if you guys have that where you're at, but here in, uh, in Oklahoma City, we have a photography group and mm -hmm. we host pop up meets. And uh, it's a good way for photographers, videographers, models to get together in a certain location and everybody just kind of takes pictures and network and do stuff like that. So it enables you to, you know, meet, interact, share, and you help each other grow on social medias and they help get the word out about you and it helps you book more and more people. So, I mean, it's just a cool way to network. And whenever I talk to a couple of my other photography friends that are, you know, stationed throughout the country, they say they don't have anything like that. Or, you know, it's hard to build clientele in some of the bigger cities. And I'm just like, man, if you could take the initiative, you know, use Facebook and Instagram uh, and TikTok as your tool, you know, start a group. You know, I mean, there's other people in that area who have the same interest. And, you know, you guys just all meet in one, you know, collective area. I mean, yeah, we're in a pandemic. So, of course, you know, try to abide by the rules. But still, I mean, just get together as a collective and just start shooting, you know, and build relationships with people. Yeah, 100 percent. There's a couple different um, like photography and model groups that I used to be a part of. Um, some of them were a little toxic cause you would get a lot of dudes that would just want to see naked women. So they, they would only take pictures of like 18, 19 year old girls that were like half naked all the time. So 
I kind of got annoyed by that, but actually the past year in 2020, my photography really shifted. So I used to think that I wanted to be a portrait photographer and I used to think that I wanted to, I used to think I wanted to be a portrait photographer and documentary photographer. And now I've realized that it's just in my nature to document stuff. I mean, I've got these journals um, that I've written in for 10 years that I just, I'll write in either in Japanese or in English and just document what happened that day. Not like a dear diary thing, but just like, hey, today a tornado came through this city and this thing happened over here near me and like this thing is going on right now. Like this specific event is happening. Just to, I don't know, just to have a documentation of something. So I've kind of realized like the documentary photographer thing, that's kind of already in my nature. When 2020 coronavirus came through and people stopped mm -hmm. scheduling portrait sessions, I kind of realized that it didn't, it bummed me out because I wasn't making money, but like it didn't bother me creatively. And I think that's because I've kind of realized that I really prefer fine art photography more than documentary or more than portrait photography. So like, I mean, I, I enjoy thinking of an idea of a photo and then actually putting pieces together to make that photo come true. So like I would actually rather reach out to a certain person who has a look that I'm looking for in a photo and has the style and has the personality for this photo and then put them in this picture and create it almost like a movie, you know? So like I had this idea, somebody had reached out to me to do photos and they said they wanted to do some like fine art stuff. So I was like, all right, cool. So I opened up my notebook that has like a million pages full of fine art ideas that I've never shot yet. And I had this idea for like blood dripping down somebody's face, like it, it set in a certain way. So I've kind of realized that like doing shoots like that, where people ask me to come up with an idea um, is kind of the way I like to do it. I like to do my own ideas, but I like to bounce off other people too. So I, I kind of think I'm shifting, honestly. I don't know if I'm going to be doing a whole lot more like portraits and stuff. I mean, I'll do it for money. I'll do whatever with photos for money to an extent. But uh, I think I'm going to kind of switch to uh, kind of like more like a Tyler Shields style. If you know who Tyler Shields is, if you don't, you should look him up. He's fantastic. But he's the kind of guy that like, he did. He, he got famous doing portraits for celebrities and photos for celebrities that like half the time it wouldn't even show who the celebrity was, you know, like he would take a famous celebrity and uh, have them jump off of a building and like land on something, you know, where they're not going to die, obviously. And he would take a picture of them jumping off a building from behind them. So you don't even know it's them, but the celebrity loves it. And he would go and sell those prints. And when they found out who was in the photo, his some of his prints sell for like twenty thousand dollars. I mean, they're insane, and he's got some crazy cool work. Um, so I think that's probably what I'm going to focus on now. I've got a lot of ideas, and I'll actually show you one of, one that I'm working on. We did a test photo for this idea I had, but it didn't work out. I think I might have sent it to you. I don't remember. And we're going to reshoot it soon. So yeah, I think that's what I'm kind of shifting towards. But I'm not really I'm not a hundred percent on it yet. Do you have like a specific? Uh, you have a specific goal that you want to take photography? Like, do you want to make a photo book? Do you want to make it a full-time career? Do you want to like take photos of something specific? Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, honestly, like I still like my whole mindset, you know, a lot of my friends around here who do photography, I'll tell them all the time. I'm like, dude, I'm trash compared to you. So, but, you know, a lot of them tell me I do great work, too. And I'm just like, eh. and then, you know, my wife, she says the same thing. But ultimately, like my goal is to, you know, um, I mean, I would like to do a book. I kind of want to once I get to where I'm a bit more uh, like to where my family's a bit more stable. I would like to um, do a trip like a 
like, you know, start a, a series to where if we travel, you know, I'll document the travels, you know, kind of make a book of that type of stuff. Um, Cause as of right now, I can honestly say like, I don't have a, a dedicated style or anything that I'm dedicated to truly shooting. Um, as of lately, like I said, I've been getting a mix of a bunch of different stuff. You know, I shoot, I shoot cars, I shoot couples, I shoot pets, I shoot some of kind of everything. Um, I've been recently uh, doing some, I guess you can say promotional style stuff. So I'm trying to also get into that because I think my end goal is I would like to be a well-rounded photographer to where if somebody comes up to me and they want something, I can say, yeah, I can do that. You know, a lot of times I'll turn stuff down because I'll say, hey, uh, that's not my style of shooting, but I can recommend somebody. So ultimately, I like to say I can be well-rounded and, you know, be able to shoot whatever anybody has an idea for. Dude, that's that's a perfect way to do it. I think that too many people today like put themselves in like a category. And I know I just said that I kind of like have gravitated toward, more towards fine art photography, but I guess that's just because that's something that I've done for a long time and that's something that I kind of want to nail in a little bit more. Um, but I think too many people yeah. say, oh, I'm a street photographer. I'm a portrait photographer. I'm a wedding photographer. I'm a, I'm a this photographer, that photographer. And I think when that when people kind of put themselves in a bubble, their photos kind of end up looking the same. Like it doesn't, I feel like it's really hard to get better if you take photos of the same shit all the time. Like every single photo you take is this style and this this edit and everything. And that doesn't mean the photos are bad, but it's just it just gets repetitive and gets boring. I feel like my Instagram for a long time, uh, had a certain style to it. And then, I mean, the Instagram is, is not all my photos. Instagram is just whatever I put online. Um, but it did kind of reflect yeah. the photos I was taking for a long time. And then, I mean, it just switched. It, I would just, sometimes my photos were square. Sometimes they were landscape. Sometimes they were portrait. They were black and white. They were color. They were this kind of film, that kind of film. There were portraits of people. There were street photos. There were documentary things. Just like a lot of different stuff. And I noticed that once I started switching, to just shooting anything that I could think of, it made a huge difference. And I think the biggest difference for me, besides, I mean, honestly, switching to film made a huge difference in how I shoot photos. Um, but another big difference was shooting every day. So like I've got a dedicated camera that is over there, like on my desk, and it's a film camera, but that camera is loaded up with film. I know I can take like photos anywhere, basically. And uh, I'm really comfortable with it. And that's my everyday camera. So that would be like if my wife and I are going out and doing something, I'm taking that camera with me, just sticking it in a pocket around my neck because it's real lightweight and small. And I have told myself and made myself take a photo every single day, whether it's just like my wife getting ready in the morning, I snap a photo of her, my cat doing something, my dog doing something, you know, like us out and about. And then when I look at those photos, I'm kind of yeah. like kind of seeing photos all the time more. Instead of just like looking for a photo, I'm seeing photos and just trying to figure out how I can take them rather than like, hey, what can I take a photo of? It's like, hey, I see this photo that I want to take. How can I how can I physically get to that point where I can like take that photo? Because I'm going to have to be up in this tree or like I'm going to have to climb underneath this fence to get this shot or whatever. I feel like that's a, a big thing for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I can relate. That's one thing I, I know uh, 
a lot of times I, I wish I would do is, you know, take a camera with me everywhere because I'll see something like, oh, man, that would be a dope shot. And uh, I just I normally don't like I, I'll leave it there. But one day, one day, I think people do that with film photography. Also, I think I think when you shoot photos on film, it for me, it feels nostalgic because I mean, just like you, all my baby pictures are on film. I mean, our, our childhood photos are all film cameras. I bet, I bet a lot of your family album is shot on like a disposable film camera you got when you went to SeaWorld or wherever you guys went as a family, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And when you look at that like style of the photo, it's nostalgic. It feels like something you can actually touch. So it kind of feels like you're creating something instead of just like snapping a photo of it. And I think, uh, I don't know, film with film photography, mm -hmm. there are a lot of popular photographers online, especially on YouTube, that have, you know, quarter of a million subscribers that shoot in a specific style. And they're really good at that. But then what happens is you get a lot of people that, like, mimic everything that that person does. They shoot the same film, the same cameras, the same subjects, and the same angles and everything. So it kind of just gets like overdone but i mean man I, I think my biggest recommendation to anybody that's trying to get better is just like i used to have this point and shoot digital camera that i kept in my pocket all the time everywhere i went anywhere and like being able to take a photo outside of using like a cell phone or something like that like have a dedicated camera to take a photo every day where you're not carrying a big dslr that was huge stepping stone for me it really enabled me or enabled me to to take a lot of different kinds of photos that I wasn't thinking of before. Because DSLRs are huge, bulky, and everybody stares at you when you carry one. So having something that fits in a coat pocket, it came in clutch. I've, like I said, I've wanted to get into it, but I definitely agree. Like, if I, I appreciate the photographers who do get on YouTube. Like, I, I like watching Peter McKinn a lot. Um, I get a lot of, I got a lot of tips from him um, getting back into photography. I'll look at some sets that I did years ago compared to what I, I got now and my my knowledge and my 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 end product has increased substantially. So I definitely use YouTube as a tool sometimes. Um, like I if I say like I want to shoot a car a certain way, but I can't execute it. I might go to YouTube real quick, see if anybody shot a certain way, what they did, and then I'll probably go try it out just to have that style in my back pocket, you know? Like, it won't be my style. It won't be something that I'm aiming to shoot for each and every time, but I will um, I will have that style so that way if, like, a, a customer comes up to me and say they want to do that kind of style, I can I can say yeah I could do that excuse me but um you know like I said I agree like that's one bad thing that you know comes with putting how you shoot because if you have a huge fan base they're all gonna want to shoot like you and that's one thing that I do kind of frown upon with photography is that a lot of people um, I see it a lot with like family photos or and stuff like that um a lot of people shoot the same it's like i can almost tell what preset they may have used or yeah where they you know stuff like that and that i kind of frown upon a little bit but i'm not going to stop anybody from creating art at the same time 
Yeah, that's a good point, man. There's a lot there's a lot of gatekeepers when it comes to photography. I mean, I guess in everything. I mean, whether it's cars, anime, photography, there's always these people that say like, oh, if you don't do this, this, and this, then it's not right. So, I mean, I was guilty of that for a long time too. Um, I would see, like what you were saying earlier, you said uh, uh, it kind of frustrated you when you would see people that like just because it seemed like anybody could be a photographer, you know, you buy buy a three hundred dollar camera, somebody sees it, looks like a DSLR, they're like that person's a photographer, and they hire them for stuff. And I used to get really salty about that stuff, and then I kind of realized like, well, like a lot of my fa- my favorite photographer photographers that are becoming more popular now and have had like a little bit of a following, they were shooting for ten or fifteen years straight, like grinding hard, taking a lot of photos you know, thousands and thousands of photos that no one saw. Yeah. And at one point they started to get a little bit better. Maybe it was one shot. Maybe it was just the culmination of like constantly shooting. So I think I'm kind of coming up to that point where like I've taken, I mean, I've taken a lot of photos, a lot of photos of a lot of different stuff. And like with 35 millimeter film, I've got, Dude. I've got binders full of photos, like negatives. I've got, I've thrown away more negatives than I've kept. I usually like, I would, I would scan them in, and once I realized I wasn't going to use them anymore, just toss them out. But I think my first year shooting film, I shot like 350 rolls of film or something like that. I've never shot film, but I know um, in the past probably seven, eight years, I've got probably two one terabyte hard drives filled up with photos that I've never like put out. I mean, to fill up a terabyte, that's a lot. So, you know, I just... I got photos that I know if I wanted to, I can go back and, you know, touch up and release. But I just know like I can look at the photos from back then, the way that I shot to now, I can say is so much better. Oh, yeah. And keeping a history of your photos, too. I found that like there are some photos that when I took, I didn't really think much of it and I just pushed it off, didn't put it anywhere. I just thought it wasn't that good. And I've been going through my Lightroom and like finding these old photos that I took and realizing like, oh, damn, that actually wasn't as bad as I thought it was. And I think what happens sometimes for me, at least, and this is specific to film photography and I guess maybe digital, too. But when you shoot a digital photo, like you can see exactly what it looks like right then and there. You don't have to wait for it to develop. You know if you got it or not. And you can readjust and take 20 photos of the same thing and make sure. I mean, honestly, I probably would take like 50 photos of the same thing and make sure I got it right. Well, with film sometimes like Mm -hmm. I think I've got this photo perfect and I take the photo and I'm so excited to see it. And then when I get it developed, I don't actually like it that much and it's not what I thought it was going to be. So then I assume that the photo is a bad photo and I just don't pay attention to it anymore. Well, then I've gone back and seen those photos that I didn't think were that great. And I look at them a year and a half, three years later, I'm like, Oh shit, that's actually not that bad. Like that's a pretty good photo. It just wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've definitely had one of those. Um, You know, sometimes my wife, she 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 goes through my Lightroom or she'll check out like the stuff that I shot once I've like uh, transferred the files or whatever. And like, you know, I'll be like, ah, that photo is trash. It wasn't the angle that I want. And uh, that's cool thing about having a wife who's also creative, even though she doesn't really use her talents, but she can see things different to where what I think isn't good. She'll tell me it's like, you know, she'll say, if you tweak this, fix this right here, you know, if you can do that, this photo will be perfect. So like I said, she, she encourages a lot of my, uh, 
a lot of my photography, a lot. Like I said, she's the one who kind of keeps me going. I feel like, like uh, I'm questioning this photo. Should I post this photo? And then, you know, there's some that I'll post that, she, you know, she's like, before I even post it, she's like, this photo is going to win you over. You know, you're going to have a lot of people who love this one, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. So like I said, um, it sometimes you just got to go back through your old stuff and look. I mean, I think a lot of times I, I passed on photos because I had that mindset, ah, oh, this, this ain't good enough for, for me to post on Instagram or this won't get me a lot of likes and this isn't what's trending, but it really was a good photo. And I just looked it over because I was letting social media dictate what I thought was a good photo. Man, that's, that's a, that's a really good point. Uh, when it comes to photography, like I think that's the number one thing people need to ignore, you know, like it's hard to also because we're like accustomed to if something's good, it gets attention. If it doesn't get attention, if it's something's good, it must get attention. And if it gets a lot of attention, that means it's good, which is not always true. Like I've seen so many photos that were just trash that maybe the composition was weird. The edit on there was really weird. The subject matter was just happened to be an attractive woman. So it gets a bunch of attention, but then the photo is terrible. So, and then in that token, when you think that way, if you think that a photo getting a lot of attention is a good photo, then if your photo doesn't get a lot of attention, that must mean that it's a bad photo, which is just not true at all. Dude, I really appreciate you coming on today. I don't want to cut it short at all, but we're, we're coming up on like two hours now. And I think we did fantastic. I don't think we're going to have to edit. I don't think I'm going to have to edit any of this, honestly. I think this is going to be like... I'm going to click it up there. I might cut out a couple of times where I coughed, and that's about it. Oh, man. Hey, like I said, I know we've talked about it for a while. Um, like I said, I just appreciate you for considering putting me on your podcast. You know, um, I do check it out when I'm at work. It just gives me something to listen to. And I like hearing, uh, you know, people that we, we went to school with and stuff talk. And, you know, I, like I said, I support what you're doing. You're one of those guys that, I look up to uh, as far as photography goes. You make me want to. You make me want to upgrade my skill set. You know, like I said, um, the next thing I will into is uh, is uh, the film photography. So I I support you, man. I appreciate your work, and you know, I always take any compliment that you give me as you know something that I hold dearly. You know. So um, I'm, I'm, like I said, I appreciate it, man. I'm honored to even be a part of it. Like I said, I told my wife, I was like, I'm nervous. I don't know what to say. I'm not sure how this is going to go. <laughs> no, man, so, you did fantastic, especially uh, like, I appreciate you saying all that, dude. I, I really, really do appreciate that. And you did a fantastic job. Uh, before you go, or before we end this Zoom call, what you've got an Instagram, you've got some photo stuff like we've been talking about. You've got some great work. Where can people find your stuff? Where can people find your Instagram? Like, what's your Instagram name? Do you have a Facebook? Do you have a website? All that kind of stuff. A website will be coming in the future. Uh, I got a cousin I'm working with for that. Um, on Facebook, you can find my some of my work. Not all of my work, but you can find some of it at uh, if you just type in RW Media Co. Uh, my Instagram is RW Media Co. That's where a lot of my uh, photos will be posted. Um, I try not to post a lot of 
personal content from uh, certain couples without their permission. So you'll see a lot of a mix of stuff on there. I try to mix it up to where it's not the same. And uh, also right now, um, I'm working on a new project for a customer. I will be uh, pretty much a content creator for this guy. So everything you see is going to be created pretty much by me. Um, if you want to follow that kind of stuff, it's automotive related, it's racing related. So if you guys want to see that kind of stuff on Instagram, it's VXXRHEES Motorsports. And uh, it's just like that. It's technically Voorhees, but we spelled it VXXRHEES Motorsports on Instagram. Um, expect photos, videos, and stuff like that coming up that will be edited by me. I'm really excited to see that. That that's that's going to be something pretty cool, especially because I feel like you have a different take on uh, automotive related stuff because you've been behind the wheel, underneath the engine, like just doing everything related to cars. So you probably have a different uh, a different care when you take pictures of of uh, or take photos of cars for sure. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you coming on, man. I I know we were taking a minute to try to figure out like a good time to come on, but I appreciate you giving me a couple hours of your time so we can talk about cars and photography and all that stuff. I appreciate you, man, and uh, I will be in touch. Thank you, man.